Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Good afternoon. Welcome to today's edition of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. Uh, I'm very elated to have our guest today, Brent Christopher, talk about a whole host of issues. But uh, before I get to that, as always, I want to remind people to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, if you support the content, uh, we think these are important topics to discuss, uh, as always, and they're particularly complicated topics, so they're not for the faint of heart of the uh, the people who are kind of indifferent, you got to want to really dive into the topics that we uh, we produce our our, our show around. So with that, um, we're going to talk today a little bit about what's going on in the healthcare world, and specifically with regard to what's going on with children's health, uh, and specifically with uh, the president of the Children's Medical Center Foundation, uh, Brent Christopher, about children's mental health. And so this is an incredibly uh, important area of conversation, but also uh, riddled with challenges that most of us aren't uh, seeing firsthand in the way that we ought to be. And I'm hoping and I'm expecting that we're going to see a lot of clarity provided, or at least in a better understanding of the problem uh, today with Brent. So with that, Brent Christopher, welcome. Uh, I have been, I have been vigorously, ardently pursuing Brent to come on and talk <laughs> months on end. And I'm so grateful for your, your being on the podcast today, Brent. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks. So Brent, you, you kind of sit in a really interesting space right now. Physically, you're, you know, you're in the hospital, uh, you're involved with hospital operations uh, in a certain way, but also not in a certain way. I mean, you got a foot in and a foot outside of the camp. Kind of talk about your role a little bit and kind of what perch that gives you to observe and, you know, if not opine, certainly develop thoughts about uh, the state of affairs, especially with regard to children's health and other forms of pediatric health issues. So up front, I have to confess, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professional hospital administrator. Um, I'm sort of the one thing that doesn't look like the other inside a healthcare system, but I do get the privilege of working alongside uh, an incredible team of people who get to engage with community leaders and donors and elected officials and our internal clinical staff and hospital administration staff, all those folks, and try to facilitate the interaction between the two, right? Help the community better understand what the needs of kids and families are in this region and how those can be addressed, um, but to also be sure that the community understands what's going on within the healthcare system itself and how a place like Children's Health here in North Texas operates and functions and the ways that the community can provide support, whether that's financial support or advocacy or volunteer support or, you know, you name it, um, that makes a difference toward accomplishing the mission. So um, I'm the externally focused guy. And I count it as a real privilege to get to have an inside view into what is happening within the walls of the hospital and the research laboratories every day. Now, you are a also a remarkably and multi and, and I guess in a certain way multidisciplinary, multidisciplinarily educated guy. 
right? So you're a lawyer by training. You've got a, uh, a couple of other degrees on top of your undergraduate degree. How does that inform your thinking? Because it seems to me like you're uniquely capable of employing what I call systems thinking to the observations you have in healthcare, which makes you a very, very important asset. Well, I don't know. You're gracious to say that. Um, I, I will confess that I love solving problems. And I like the idea of getting to roll up my sleeves along with other folks and bringing the right resources uh, around the kitchen table, so to speak, and figuring out how to tackle some thorny issue. I think that's oftentimes why people maybe pursue a law degree. It was one of the things that drew me to law school. But after practicing law in courtrooms for a few years, I decided, you know, I'm not sure that's the exact way that I want to spend the rest of my life. And I looked for some other opportunities to deploy that same skill set differently uh, and maybe contribute to the greater good. And so um, I've had the pleasure of, of being involved on the not-for-profit side of the world now for many, many years, working in philanthropy, working with foundations, um, and then working specifically now with an organization like Children's Health and getting to go much deeper in one particular area and looking at how strategic philanthropy can make a big difference to the quality of life in a community. And, and how incredibly important that is, my goodness, of all people, I mean, especially of all demographics, children are the most vulnerable of our number. So here we are, I'm going to bridge a little bit into kind of current situation because I think it informs so much of what's going on. Uh, and I'm going to stray a little bit from the traditional talk around business models. And I want to talk about health concerns. Um, I had uh, a fantastic guest, Deborah McMurray, talk about mental health issues that she had dealt with and, and how that was such a difficult thing. She's uh, I don't want to betray her age altogether, but she's, let's just say, north of 60. And she told us a story about how at age four, and I'm sorry, she told this to a family member in the last year, but at age four, she had been raped as a child and how she had to carry that burden uh, and the, the mental health challenges that created for her and how she had to overcome and get to what she now calls optimistically the sunny side of shame. Uh, so she had a very, very powerful story that also created a, a very, very bright light of optimism going out of that. Um, but let's use that as a segue of mental health issues and, and go from one end of the age spectrum where somebody's likely characterized as being the, in the third third of life uh, to somebody who would be in the first third of life. And some of the issues that you're seeing, I mean, we obviously we've had COVID now for a while that has an effect on kids and being able to not go to school or being able to go to school, wearing masks, having plastic dividers, not being able to play with friends, et cetera. What are you seeing on the front lines? You're watching this every day. So the mental health needs of kids have been increasing for years. The pandemic has exacerbated the problem. We've seen the trend lines now take a steeper pitch, right? And those needs are becoming much more obvious. But the mental health needs of kids have uh, been sort of woefully unaddressed or underaddressed for a long, long, long time. Um, it's tough. Some kids have those experiences that you just described. We might call those adverse childhood experiences um, that are dramatic, right? That's a, that's a particular event that happens at a moment in time that is stark and clear and traumatic. And certainly there are a lot of kids that, that face those. Um, 
A lot of other kids, though, are dealing with mental health issues and struggles that aren't so apparent. There might not be one obvious cause or event like that that triggers something. And yet there can be a progression and development of symptoms and issues that signal a mental health crisis that's coming down the road that has nothing to do with a particular uh, traumatic event like that. And it all can run the gamut. Um, statistically, um, the sad thing is that they, they say around 50% of the people who are dealing with depression and anxiety, which are the two most common sort of run-of-the-mill mental health issues, 50% of the people dealing with those issues in the United States go undiagnosed and untreated. That's a large pool of the population. And for many of those folks, the symptoms and the conditions actually started when they were children. We see kids at Children's Health a variety of ages. We're not talking just about maybe teenagers that you might expect who are 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, um, but oftentimes much younger children also are grappling with um, significant issues around anxiety and depression. For most people, they may not progress beyond the sort of moderate range, but that doesn't mean they aren't significant or serious or that they can't build upon themselves over time. And maybe by those teenage years or by their 20s or 30s, things build up to a point and escalate to a stage where there's a crisis and they, they show up and try to start dealing with those mental health issues for the first time in an emergency room. Uh, it is uh, shocking to see the number of kids in the emergency department here at Children's Health um, every day right now. It is absolutely mind-boggling. Already in 2021, we've seen as many kids having a mental health crisis in the emergency room as we saw during the entire year of 2020. We've got three months yet to go. And that is, again, a trend line that didn't just start during these last two years. You know, it's been, it's been growing over time. The startling statistic that usually gets people's attention is that for kids that are age 15 up to sort of young adulthood around 24, the CDC reports now that suicide is the second leading cause of death for that age group, 15 to 24. Um, and rarely does that happen as a sudden event, right? There's a, there's a buildup to that point. Um, so something is definitely going on with our kids. Okay, so you said that you're going to get to a, a more startling statistic. I've already found three statistics <laughs> that are startling. <laughs> that 50% of depression is undiagnosed or, and untreated. The second is that your numbers have increased so dramatically uh, year over year. And the third is the suicide rate is the second leading cause. Those are all collectively you know, terrible statistics. Um, but let me see if we can kind of go one layer down. And I'm going to try and do this in a way that um, uses uh, layman's terms and layman's definitions for what could be medical characterizations. So I kind of think about things in uh, cognitive or functional uh, brain activity or mental health. Uh, then there's what I would call psychological uh, versions of that or, or mental health issues. And then there are what I call emotional uh, mental health issues. And so the way I, the way I think about it, and I'm, I'm obviously a layman here, but the, the, the cognitive issues rate 
relate to brain functionality. And I know you have a relationship with the Brain Health Center. Um, I would think that that's a whole set of problems that's unique into, into itself. Uh, then there's this, the middle category is psychological, which is the way I think about it, how your decisions are made uh, from a, um, an intellectual and an emotional, a combination of those two things. And there's an emotional reaction, which is you just have emotional reactions to things which are likely uh, linked to some form of triggering event or triggering a triggered response. Is, is that an okay framework to think about things as you're seeing them on the front line or is it unhelpfully detailed? <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's a bad way to think about it. I'm uh, not being a clinician. I can't tell you the way a pediatric psychologist or a pediatric psychiatrist would, would necessarily frame that. I, I think of it in terms of a spectrum of severity and um, those characteristics. What is it? How, what are the complications, meaning the output you're having to deal with? Yeah, I get that. Okay. And, and somewhat rooted in the, in the underlying genesis of the issue where you can look at sort of mild to moderate levels of anxiety and depression, maybe at one end of that spectrum. And then you move all the way to the other end of that spectrum, and you've got very significant things that have a strong genetic basis that, that um, may manifest themselves at a later point in time, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, those types of, of mental health issues. And then this huge spectrum in between, where you have uh, things like autism and mood disorders and different types of dependencies and dependent behavior, um, that may lead to uh, drug and alcohol addiction and those kinds of things, and, and a whole range of eating disorders and, and a variety of things that stretch across that spectrum. Um, the reality is that most kids that are facing a mental health issue, as I understand it, fall predominantly on that low end of acuity side of the spectrum. And a relatively small number of kids wind up on the high acuity end, dealing with something like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Now, if, if a child is gonna be dealing with bipolar disorder, they're gonna need intensive therapy and care, and they're going to need the best uh, healthcare professionals that are available to, to provide that care to them. And it will be an intensive amount of resources, but that's a relatively small number of people compared to the whole. Most kids these days are dealing with anxiety and depression at that opposite end of the scale. And yet, as you alluded to, most of them are not getting flagged early on for struggling with those issues. And so they fester and they progress over time and build and compound to a point where the child has to ultimately then reach a breaking point and there's a dramatic crisis that forces everybody typically into the emergency room. And let me just say, Todd, that the last place you wanna to go <laughs> to initiate mental health care for anybody, much less a kid, is into the emergency room uh, of a big medical center. I mean, that is a place that provides high acuity care at a moment of crisis, and that's what it is there for. But that's not an ideal place to assess the long-term mental health needs and to try to address them with everything else that's going on in an emergency room. So 
this, you know, each each sentence you, you offer gives me about 50 questions <laughs> try and, and not and not, uh, and not take you down the rabbit hole. But um, so dealing with children's issues is at once both um, more complicated and less complicated. Right. So it's it's more complicated because the ability of the patient to formulate what's actually going on and express that, communicate that to a care provider is more limited in all probability, but just because they have life experience, the emotional maturity or the intellectual maturity to do so. But at the same time, you don't have some of the legal issues because you have a parent or a guardian that can step in and make decisions. Uh, I just, by way of uh, digression, uh, one of the challenges, I I think you know this, but uh, my mother was involved in a, in a very serious plane crash and I was her primary caregiver for the next uh, four decades of her life, um, which included, unfortunately, uh, a whole bunch of mental health issues that were derived or which arose out of the acute pain she suffered because two thirds of her body was covered with third degree burns or worse. And so we had, you know, all sorts of pharmacological issues and med issues and dependency issues that came around because the pain was so acute and the meds wouldn't handle it. Uh, So I actually had to, I had to use judicial process and get against my mother, which is not never a good thing for a son to have to do uh, twice uh, because I had her power of attorney and her medical directive. The good news, if there is any good news in the story, is that a parent or a guardian doesn't have to go through that with a child, you know, a minor. Right. Um, given that today's subject is minors, that's something we don't have to do. With. But at the same time, we also do have to deal with how do you get access to the right caregivers, which is not easy at all. Um, the reason I created my little trichotomy, if you will, the way of thinking about it is because I would imagine that you, depending upon the nature of the issue, you have to, you have to get specialists, specialists from the right area to help solve the problem based on its origin, right? So uh, the the work of a psychologist is different than that of a brain surgeon, obviously, um, or some other form of of a therapist. So how does, you know, the the series of statements begs the question, how does one navigate the problem? You know, if if you don't go in through the doors of the ER, what is a better way to handle it? How, how would a, a parent or a guardian come to children's for help before they need to go to the ER? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so, so the way we've responded in this country, largely over many years, um, to help all these kids who are showing up through the emergency room door is to want to build more inpatient beds, right? Just create a higher inpatient psychiatry unit. That's actually um, not a long-term sustainable approach to figuring out how to address this problem. It's not sustainable fiscally for the operations of the healthcare system. It's not good for the kids or families either, right? Um, They need to avoid that entry door into the ER if at all possible. So so your question is a great one. And you think about, you know, where do people typically turn? Um, There's no one silver bullet that is the answer here. Certainly, there are school counselors and people available in the, in the public school setting that can be a helpful resource from time to time. We provide a lot of tele-behavioral health services um, that are now integrated into school settings that actually are incredibly effective. 
Uh, kids open up more over an iPad than they will talking to you face to face. And they don't have to make an appointment and go somewhere else. They can sit down in a private office with an iPad and have a great conversation with the therapist. That's all good. Um, what, a the terrific, problem, what, a, what a terrific application of that technology. I mean, I oh, genuinely, sure. you know, that's, a, that's a wonderful solution. It is. It is. It's, uh, it's tough from a scalability standpoint, just from the standpoint of, of uh, not being able to get reimbursed for that care uh, often. Now, that is changing. You know, commercial carriers over the last couple of years have started paying for more uh, and expanded types of integrated behavioral health in traditional healthcare settings um, and including virtual health visits, especially during the pandemic. Those laws are changing. Uh, in Texas, Medicaid is going to start covering some embedded behavioral health starting next year in 2022. Um, so regardless of how you may feel about uh, the Medicaid system, that's actually a helpful and constructive way to help deal with this problem on the front end. But your, your real question is, if I'm a parent, how do I know where to go, right? Where, <laughs> what's my starting point? So you think where most of us would turn, we, we might turn at least. Before you get there, let me tell you what I did. Okay. Because this will tell you, I mean, I'm a reasonably bright guy and I'm you know, pretty well educated. <laughs> I got a law degree too. and uh, But I had no idea where to go. And yeah. You know, my mom was in uh, Miami. And again, it's a parent, not a child. But I called the Mental Health Association of Dallas. Yeah. Who then put me in touch with somebody in Miami. And with all due respect and all great fondness for the Mental Health Association of Dallas, it was absolutely useless. Um, yeah. Because what, what's happening is you're creating a contact to somebody else who has no relationship with you. Right. And and who's going to give a reference to a name they don't know. Right. Right. So my, my point is illustrating that's the, that's what I would characterize for myself as a mistake I made as a, as a child or, but I'm the primary caregiver. So now I'm kind of coming to you. Let's imagine that it's a, my child, I'm coming back to you. And I'm, I, I think the telehealth is a great idea, but because then you're going to get a, a competent caregiver on the other end of the line. Right. And but he may or may not be competent in the public school. Um, but how, how, so keep, keep going with that. I just wanted to share that's, that's how I went and it was a complete whiff. Sure. But, but I don't know that that was a mistake. That's a, that was a normal response and a logical response. It just wasn't helpful to you. And, and to compound this problem, there are not enough pediatric psychologists and pediatric psychiatrists who are being trained in this country each year to even come close to meeting the demand. There is an enormous supply and demand issue, particularly in this area. When you look at the huge volume of need and the number of trained professionals who are there as psychologists and psychiatrists, the gap is, is enormous. So the place a lot of parents would turn is a pediatrician, right? You're going to maybe take your child in at least once a year for, for an annual checkup or well-child visit. You're going to have to get... Um, school vaccinations and all that kind of stuff, right? Just in the normal course of, of what you would do with your child. Typically, and I'm not speaking of any one particular pediatrician here, but typically what has happened in the past is a parent might say to a pediatrician or the child might, might acknowledge, hey, there's some stuff we're dealing with here that is a little different <laughs> than what we've normally been dealing with. And you know, there's a lot of moodiness and a lot of slamming doors and uh, alone time and isolation. And I'm getting concerned about a few things. 
I need some help in starting to work through this. Where do I go? And what does a pediatrician typically do? Typically, they're going to grab a sheet of Xerox paper that they've got in a little worn file folder at the end of a desk, and they're going to hand it to you, and it's going to have the printed names of 10 different practices on there and their phone numbers. And the pediatrician is going to say, call one of these people. They'll be glad to talk with you and help you out. And so you think, great. And you go home with your sheet of paper and you start calling. And most of those practices are closed to new patients or not even in business anymore. And there is no path to success for you there to figure out how to get in and get any help. And then there's nothing else that you've been offered, right? So you're at a standstill again. And I, and I think that may be a charitable view. I, I think the first, you know, I think a lot of pediatricians might dismiss it altogether and say, well, that's adolescence or that's pre-adolescence or that's normal behavior because they don't want to lean into the problem themselves. Or, or Pandora's box that they don't feel equipped to know how to handle, right? So if I go down this path as a pediatrician and uncover something, well, then I'm on the hook for being responsive and helping to work to address it. And I feel like I'm going to get out over my skis in a heartbeat and have an issue that I don't know how to handle. And I may not have a good referral network to know even then where I would turn. So why would I go down that road in the first place? Right. Yeah. So what, so we know <laughs> I'm Owen two right now, right? right. <laughs> so what's, what's the, what's, what's the, the solution? Way? Yeah. Well, uh, the solution is certainly not to build more inpatient beds on the back end and just say, well, let's wait till there's a crisis and we'll try to wedge them into the hospital. Um, that's not a good solution. What we're coming around to, though, is to figure out that there has to be a better, both affordable and scalable approach to providing broader access at the earliest intervention point possible. And what I've come to appreciate as a non-clinician is that you actually don't have to be a trained pediatric psychologist or a trained pediatric psychiatrist to be able to ask the right questions in the front end and actually do some things that therapeutically are helpful. So there's a range of stuff that can be done through a pediatrician's office that doesn't require that higher end of expertise. And then what we've got to provide as a healthcare system and as a country, we've got to figure out how to backstop those pediatricians. What if we train them and support them to know how to screen consistently in the right way that puts up a red flag when there's an issue, that trains them around basic medication management and, and therapies that you don't have to be a psychiatrist to do. And that says, when you reach that point where you no longer are comfortable knowing what the right next step is, or you've got a patient whose care needs to escalate to a higher level of acuity, you've got a very clear referral path to know how to get the help you need then to pass that patient on to the resources that can be effective for them and not keep them trapped uh, in a primary care practice. That is what has not really existed in this country. We're looking now at how to do that here in Texas, and specifically, we're looking at how to do that here in North Texas. The Texas legislature has invested some resources, in part thanks to Senator Jane Nelson, who sponsored some great legislation on this front, that has created that higher level network that is linked actually through some of the medical schools in Texas that helps that network form around um, the high level resources and basically the hotline about where to go when something reaches a critical point. 
What we haven't done well, though, is the frontline training and equipping and professional development of everyday primary care providers, pediatricians in their normal practice with their normal panel of patients to know how to consistently screen for mental health issues and to know how to provide that very basic frontline intervention. And that's what we're looking at now, how to do at scale. And philanthropy, honestly, is going to be key to making some of that happen. Okay, before we get to the philanthropy thing, a couple of of notes there that are important. Uh, First of all, I heard immediately before this podcast taping that Senator Nelson's not going to run for re-election. So I'm hoping somebody else will pick up her mantle on this issue. Uh, That's going to be critical. And um, whether it's, uh, you know, Van, uh, Tan Parker or somebody else, whomever fills her slot, her slot, I'm hopeful that they will, they will do that. Um, I'm hopeful that you'll have an opportunity to visit with that candidate or that, uh, that elected official, uh, as soon as possible, because this is a critical issue. It seems to me that what you're describing is that there's an opportunity, like any big system, you play a variety of roles you play kind of what I would call a B2C role, meaning a, uh, where you're the business and you're dealing directly with patients or consumers of healthcare. And there's also a B2B role where you're supporting other doctors, other clinic, exactly. clinical practices and like. And the big opportunity, it sounds like, is uh, are things like online tools, templates, protocols, med management tools, patient records, uh, AI, all those kinds of things that would have uh, a beneficial impact on making that clinician more effective on the front line. So you're distributing into the field as far as into the field as is possible that the the things necessary to provide a high quality of care as early as possible. And so that as soon as the early warning detection signs flare up, then the the clinician has available at their fingertips digitally accessible tools that can uh, help uh, deliver a high quality of care and a good outcome. So it seems to me, if I can, I'm, I don't want to lead the witness here, but I may be doing so. Uh, it seems to me, but that, that the opportunity for philanthropy just dives straight into that area that an, a huge capital requirement uh, and ongoing operating expenses to fund that kind of a B2B opportunity uh, that, because that doesn't exist today. And this is kind of like uh, a little bit of venture philanthropy, if you will, meaning it's early stage capital that needs to go into a philanthropic effort to solve a problem that's an urgent need and for which there are likely uh fewer than desirably available resources to solve the problem. You can't tap into the Medicaid budget more because that, those dollars are already spoken for. Uh, we're talking about Medi- we're talking about pediatrics, so it's not it's a Medicaid thing, not a Medicare thing. Right. Uh, so we're we're kind of falling we for some of our population, we're falling into a tweener section. Um, and we also have to get insurance companies on board so that they can do their part and play a role in all this as well, which ought to be standard coverage because this is a part of care. Uh, so let me just kind of test my thesis. Is that kind of where you're seeing the, the capital needs? You're hitting the nail on the head. Um, at Children's Health, we've started collaborating just privately behind the scenes with the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, which was started 
by the Meadows Foundation. It's a separate independent 501c3 organization. Tom Luce helped give birth to that and lead it in the beginning. Um, a guy named Andy Keller, Dr. Keller is, is heading up that work right now. Great thought partner and practical partner with Children's Health on this and developing some training modules that can be available for primary care physicians, um, as well as some of the analysis and policy work that's gonna to need to happen in Austin and other places, things like that. Um, some of the training is, is the practical clinical training that you've described and alluded to. Some of it, though, is as basic as teaching pediatricians how to correctly use the available billing codes that are out there now so that they can get paid for this work. You know, that's been another barrier. There was this perception that no one's gonna pay for all of the work and time that I will have to spend now with these patients. And that's gonna destroy the business model for my practice. Um, that is changing though, and it's changing rapidly. That's so there will be you know, some practical training, hands-on training about just how to run your, your business in your pediatrician practice. And on the clinical side, what the right guidance and, and support is around medication management, these early intervention therapies and things like that, um, that can be used, coupled then with knowing that a place like Children's Health or in other regions, a different institution can, can be there as a backstop for you whenever things escalate or get to that point with a smaller number of patients. But, but it's really basically a nip it in the bud kind of, kind of strategy. I think of this in a, in a military kind of context, oddly enough, as sort of like a Dunkirk moment. I, I think of all these kids facing mental health challenges and especially the predominance of the anxiety and depression being those 300,000 British troops that were stuck on the beach, right? And we, we don't have enough of the big fancy equipment and ships to be able to get up to that beach to rescue all of them. But if we can equip and empower the small armada of the weekend yachts and the fishing boats and all those things that are that are also available in the broader arsenal, we just have to think about it differently. Deploy them to come across the channel. We can reach all those people that are stuck on the beach and save them. That is the same kind of context for our kids today, especially the ones, the majority of them, that are battling anxiety and depression. See, I told you that multidisciplinary education came in handy. All right, so... Are you now? Uh, this may be a little wonky, and I'm, I'm maybe taking you into the deep end here. But it seems to me that we have another challenge in the billing with healthcare uh, insurance companies, in that you don't want them billing a revenue code, and I'm not confident that there are the right CPT codes, meaning the billing instance that that would be appropriate. So you kind of have to get the insurance companies to recognize that this is a continuity of care and, and a broader issue than a, you know, a one-time doctor's visit to get your tetanus shot. Yes. Is that it? And, and I got to believe that is a large task. I, it's kind of like moving up, you know, a glacier up back uphill with your nose. Is, am, am I mistaken there? Uh, I don't think you are mistaken. Now, you know much more than I do around the intricacies on that side of the business, but I will tell you what I hear from the experts here at Children's Health that work in that space, and certainly the folks at the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, is that the amount of movement and progress that has happened in just the last two to three years with commercial carriers is really significant. I mean, it is like you know, shifting the rudder on a giant ship that is going to incrementally have to move along at a slow pace. But, but it is happening 
And it is now happening to the point where there is meaningful progress that can make for a sustainable integration of behavioral health and mental health into a standard primary practice as an affordable component of what is delivered there. Between that and the fact that Medicaid is going to start helping with some aspects of this uh, next year in 2022, the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together in a way that will make sense and be both affordable and sustainable in the long term. I mean, it, you talked about the role of philanthropy. Philanthropy can't come in and shore up the gap for every practitioner that's not going to be able to cover their costs doing this, right? That, that doesn't work. That scale is too big. So the system has to change to deal with that side of things. The philanthropy, though, can be deployed strategically to create the training modules and help provide some of the infrastructure and the backbone behind the training and the support and a program and an initiative like this. And right now, we see both those sides coming together. We see philanthropists stepping up and wanting uh, to be that sort of early stage investor and, and take a flyer on a new approach that might actually work and then be applicable at a much broader scale across not only just the state of Texas, but, but lots of places, right? Um, while you see these system changes happening at a policy level that allow all this to coalesce into something that gives hope. So you just said a whole bunch of stuff that's really powerful. Um, first of all, I think philanthropy always loves a sympathetic cause. And if ever there is a place for sympathetic cause, it's children and, and uh, issues like these. How do we... How do we templatize something? You have a lot of sister organizations around the world, uh, but certainly around North America. Are, are your sister organizations looking at things like this? Uh, and are you able to either create and replicate with their assistance or to adopt from them best practices around this area? So there are others doing great work in this space. No one else is doing exactly what we're looking at doing in Texas, in part because, of course, each state is its own environment, right? And the, the policy landscape looks a little bit different from state to state. Um, for example, they've started actually embedding behavioral health specialists into primary care practices so that if a pediatrician, for example, has a patient with a significant mental health need and they identify that, they actually have someone in their practice who's a behavioral health specialist. Well, sure, that's a great, I mean, if you want to hold up the gold standard, that'd be beautiful. Hard to pay for that. Um, and they're having trouble scaling that in Massachusetts. And one of the barriers in Massachusetts is they don't have the Medicaid coverage for that kind of embedded care that we're about to get starting next year in Texas in 2022. Um, and ironically enough, we're going to be the more progressive of the states, it looks like, in terms of how our Medicaid system uh, thinks differently about providing that kind of mental health care coverage for uh, the broader uh, population uh, that would be covered by Medicaid. So, you know, that's, that's encouraging. Um, each state, though, is different. So can there be a cookie-cutter approach to this that is just... Uh, something you can pick up and plop down in the middle of Kansas and know it's going to work there. I'm not sure that that is true, but we do feel like given the breadth and range of the demographics in the state of Texas, if we could make something like this uh, palatable and effective in North Texas, then maybe it's something that Harris County would want to look at, and then maybe Travis County would want to look at it, and then Bear County would want to look at it, and then pretty soon down the line, it's something that has some utility statewide, 
And if the data show what we expect them to show around the effectiveness of an early intervention nip it in the bud approach, then sure, maybe other states can look at how that is a, a replicable model that is relevant to the ways that, that they think about this. You know, we talk about it too in the context of something as understandable as cancer that, that touches all of us. Um, it used to be the case that we didn't diagnose cancers that early because we didn't know how to find and detect them early. We had to wait until there was a large tumor or there were obvious physical symptoms before we could diagnose the cancer and start to treat it. It was much more developed at that point, maybe what we'd call today stage three or stage four. Um, treatments were less effective, uh, definitely harder on the patient. Outcomes weren't as good. But today, you know, we pride ourselves on often being able to find cancers at now what we call stage one, right? We want to find the right markers and pick them out as early as possible. And the intervention is less expensive. It's less painful and disruptive to the patient. And it's better. It works. It produces better outcomes for that patient in the end. Same thing is true for healthcare. Why wouldn't we be thinking about mental health care for kids in precisely the same way? We've just got to bring the infrastructure in our commercial health insurance system and the policy environment around that and to embrace that approach so that we can go forward. And trying pilot efforts like this um, may be just the ticket to get us further down that path. So I, I've not done this in any of the podcasts I've done this far, thus far, um, but I want to give an opportunity to you to tell our audience how they can help uh, financially by contributing. Where do they go to go contribute? Um, if it, how do they say, I want to give some money to this cause. I really believe in it. This makes a whole lot of walking around sense, as we say in Texas. Uh, how do I support this? Well, you're great to say that. Um, but the collaboration between Children's Health and uh, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, we are serving as the fiscal agent for that project uh, together. And so folks are welcome to go just to the website that is at give.childrens.com, super easy web address. When you go to give.childrens.com, you can see information there about mental health initiatives. If anyone wanted to make a gift, uh, you can make a gift and designate it for mental health and we'll get it into the right bucket. Um, but it's also got our contact information there. And if you'd like to visit further, just to understand more about the whole range of efforts that are going on and what the backstory is behind all that at a deeper level, we'd be delighted to talk with anyone. Brent, um, I could talk to you for another three or four hours without even getting winded. Uh, it's been such a delight. And what you have unwittingly done is you've used your multidisciplinary education to create an arc of the conversation that started with death and despair and the gravity of the issue, which was daunting and seemingly unsurmountable and left us with cause for optimism and a way to tangibly affect the outcome with a, a very, uh, I think, well-outlined approach to solving the problem. So I am, I am really feeling uh, and grateful for you, for your work and for what Children's is doing. Can't thank you enough. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. I, I know uh, you had to carve out some time for this and I'm grateful for that, but you've left us with a real reason for optimism and in light of, a, uh, as you say, the Dunkirk moment that we currently are experiencing. That's great. Todd, your, your invitation was so gracious, and it's always fun to talk with you about anything, but this has been a great conversation today. Thank you for that. 
Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.